Good to be back with you after being away in a meeting in Vinemont, Alabama, the Coleman, Alabama area. And it was my last meeting for the year. Had a good meeting there. Went through Wednesday, Sunday through Wednesday. Have a niece that is a member there. That'd be uh, Dean and Danny's sister. But anyway, I was glad to be with them for the third time and good to be back with you after my last meeting for the year. Don't go again, I think, to April, sometime like that. But look forward to spending then the winter here focusing on the local work. About four weeks ago, we had a lesson where we focused on losing your soul. And then we followed that, saying that long before that ever happens, there is a danger, though, of losing our faith. And then we followed that with a lesson where we focused on there is a danger before losing our faith of perhaps losing our courage. Today I want to talk about something else that may contribute to all of that, and that is, that is losing our influence. And we'll focus on Matthew chapter 5 as the basis for that study, though we're going to go to other places, but Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning at verse 13 through verse 16, we'll set the context a little bit later, but the text says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There are two illustrations given of influence in our text. The first is that you are the salt of the earth. The second is, he says, you are the light of the world. We'll come back to those in a moment, but what I want you to see at this juncture is that it's altogether possible that if we are the salt of the earth, that we could lose our flavor, which means we lose our influence. And if we are the light of the world, it's possible to put that light under a basket so that it loses its light. So Jesus gives two illustrations that we'll come back to and develop in a moment. I'm just wanting you to see that it's possible to lose our influence. That we are to have an influence on others like salt and like light. It's possible for salt to lose its flavor and it's also possible to hide the light so that we lose our influence. Let's define influence. Influence is this. It is the power to affect others positively or negatively. And all of us do that. Every person present has influence. Every one of us has influence. You are an influential person. Now, when we say you have influence, it might be influence that's bad or it might be influence that's good. If you're doing what is right, you have influence toward good. You're influencing others to be good. If you are continuing to practice sin, maybe the most ungodly person you have an influence, but it is toward bad and encouraging bad. And so all of us have influence. So I want to suggest to you, not only is there good influence and bad influence, but also there are varying degrees of influence. You may have a very little or small impact on others. You may have a great and powerful impact upon others. And it's possible to increase your influence towards someone, or it's also possible to diminish your influence. So when we talk about losing your influence, here's what we're talking about. You never really lose your influence. You still have it. Because every one of us have it. But here's what may happen with reference to your influence. You may lose or diminish your influence for good. 
So no longer are you influencing people toward good. You could lose that good influence and you're influencing people toward bad. Or maybe you had a powerful impact on someone and you lose your influence. And now you have a minimal impact upon them. Or maybe you have a great impact still, but it's in the wrong direction. So when we talk about losing your influence, we're saying simply that it's possible to lose or at least diminish your influence for good. And the Bible teaches that we ought to be influential people. So let's talk this morning about losing your influence, again based on Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16. Could it be possible that you're losing your influence? That you're doing things that is contributing to the loss of your influence? Three things we want to notice. Let's start with this. Let's talk about the comparisons of influence. And what we mean by that, the Bible talks about our influence and it compares it to a number of things. And we're going to talk about four of those in our study this morning. That our influence is compared, for example, in our text, to salt. It's compared to light. Later, we'll see it's compared to leaven. It's also compared to a letter or an epistle. We'll talk about all four of those. Let's start with Matthew chapter 5. Again, Matthew 5, this is the text that we've chosen that it mentions you are the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. Now open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 because we want to look at the context and develop those two thoughts there in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to set the context of all of that. This is in the setting on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5 and goes through chapter 7. So those three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is dealing with the Sermon on the Mount. What was the sermon about? Well, chapter 4 says, tells me it was about the kingdom because Jesus went everywhere preaching the gospel of the kingdom chapter 4 and in verse 23 so here is a sermon about the kingdom of God the kingdom of Christ what does he say about the kingdom well he makes three points first of all he talks about the citizens of the kingdom then he talks about righteousness in the kingdom and then he, there is the exhortation to enter the kingdom this is all focusing on the kingdom of God the kingdom of Christ what it's going to be like in his kingdom now, having said that, I want you to notice beginning at verse 2. Verse 2 is, begins the Beatitudes. We'll come back to this, but it's important to get this point. Beginning at verse 2, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who are hunger. And blessed are those who uh, thirst after righteousness. And blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart. And on down the line. What's he talking about? He's talking about the characteristics of those in the kingdom. Here are the kind of people that come into my kingdom. This is the kind of people my kingdom are made of. Here is the characteristics of those who are in the kingdom. Now then, beginning at verse 13, he talks about their influence on the world. So this is the context that we're talking about in a sermon on the kingdom. Having just said, here is their characteristic, now he says, here's the impact and the influence they have. Like what? Well, those who are in my kingdom are like salt. They're also like light. So let's talk about those two things. Let's start with the salt in verse 13. Let's go back to our text at verse 13 and see what it says. He said, you are the salt of the earth. What else does he say? Well, he says, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And that's all he says about that illustration. And then he moves to the next. So let's talk about salt. Now that's in the context, back in Matthew chapter 5, before we get to Mark 9, it was in the context of the influence of those who are in the kingdom of God. Now there are two parallel passages where that same illustration is given, but given in different contexts. So let's go to Mark chapter 9 now and notice the context, because the context is going to tell us something about the significance of the point. 
Look at verse 49. Look at verse 49, and we'll come back and throw it in the context. Verse 49 says, Everyone shall be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice seasoned with salt. Salt is good, verse 50, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. You say, well, that sounds almost just like what we read over in Matthew chapter 5. Yes, it does, but it's in a different context. It's in a context of relationships. We're not going to develop all of Mark 9. I just want to run through the context to see the context now. Back in verse 33 of Mark 9, he talks about who is the greatest. You remember that story, who's the greatest in the kingdom. That has to do with our relationships one to another, parallel to Matthew 18. It dealt with relationships. Then beginning at verse 38 through verse 41, his point was, don't reject those who work in Christ's name. That has to do with our relationship. We're to have a relationship with them. Then 42 to 48 talks about offending others. Don't offend others. Don't lead them to sin. That has to do with relationships. See the thought? The flow is continually dealing with relationships. We're more familiar with Matthew 18, but it's that same kind of thought as we see in Matthew chapter 18. Now then he ends that section talking about be salt and have peace. So in the context of saying, don't think you're better than other people, respect those who are doing the work of Christ, have that relationship, don't lead others to sin, have a good relationship, then he says be salt. In other words, be influential and have an impact on others, but have a peaceful relationship. It is in the context of relationships that Mark mentions that. Now Luke puts it in a different context now. So let's go to Luke chapter 14. Luke puts it even in an entirely different context. And in Luke 14, it is in the context of discipleship, being a follower of Christ. Look at Luke chapter 14, if you will, verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now that's interesting that he ended that with that phrase. We'll come back to that in a moment. What was the context? Discipleship. Backing up to verse 26, Christ is to be followed above all else. Reminds us of Matthew 16, doesn't it? And that we are to count the cost of being a disciple. Reminds us of Luke 9 earlier. And then he says, continue to be active and be influential. That's his point here. So in being a follower of Christ, put Christ first. In being a disciple of the Lord, count the cost of following the Lord. And you still say, I want to be a disciple of the Lord. Okay, then continue to be active and influential. Be like salt if you're going to be a follower of the Lord. So whether it's talking about the kind of people who are in the kingdom who have influence and power, or we're talking about relationships have influence and power, or you're talking about discipleship, he says, have influence and power. In all three contexts, which are different, he says we're to be like unto salt. So let's go back to the salt illustration. Salt is used to accomplish two things. As a preservative to stay the rot, in other words, to keep the meat from rotting, and also to add flavor. And so there is a sense in which we are like that. It seems to be the latter that is the point that is being made, though the other may be implied as well, because you're the salt of the earth. We are to have an impact and we're to have an influence on the world around us. We'll see that more in the light in just a moment. But it's to do two things. Now, if salt loses its effectiveness, it is worthless. Let's go back to our text now at verse 13. Notice he says, Matthew 5, 13, that if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? The same terminology was used both in Mark and in Luke. If it loses its flavor, 
It is to be thrown out under foot of men. Now there's two thoughts, or perhaps three, that are possible interpretations of that. Commentators are varied, and scholars are varied as to what that means. It may refer to it being polluted. Barclay observes that the outdoor ovens used salt beds under the tiles, and in time they became polluted so that the salt was worthless, and so all you could do with it was throw it out on the street. You couldn't throw it out on the lawn because it would destroy the grass. You couldn't throw it out in the field, it would destroy the field. You could throw it out to the dunghill, as Luke's account suggested, but more likely thrown out into the middle of the street. And that's where it'd be thrown. It's worthless. It, it, it's not good for anything, he said. Others have observed that this is not the kind of salt like we had, but the mining of the salt, once it's exposed to the elements, it begins to deteriorate. And so once it deteriorates, it's worthless then, might, may be the thought. But I think maybe Linsky has the idea that may be referring to something that is impossible. Here's what Linsky says. Linsky observes the fact that Jesus is using a figure as a figure, something that is impossible in the nature is shown by the question. What was the question? With what shall it again be turned into salt? There is no salt of salt, as Jansen observed. Once the saltiness is gone out of the salt, nothing can be again, uh, nothing can again restore the saltness to salt. The idea is beyond nature, salt losing its saltiness or it having been restored. It's not saying, if Barclay, I mean, if Linsky be correct, that it's impossible for us, but it's saying that we're to be like salt and have the impact of salt adding flavor and staying the rot. Not that salt really loses its flavor, but just suppose for illustration's sake that it did, it's worthless. So suppose you go home today and you get ready to salt and you say, this salt doesn't have any flavor anymore. What are you going to do with it? Can, can we buy seasoning to put on it so that it becomes salty again? No, you can't do that. So what do you do? You just throw it out. It's worthless. That's the point. So either illustration gets to the same point, that salt loses its flavor in the sense that it becomes worthless. That's the point we're trying to see, that we're seeing the comparison of influence. We are to be like salt. We're to stay the rod of society by our influence for good. We add flavor to life. Christianity adds flavor rather than stealing the flavor of life. But what if it loses its saltiness? It's worthless. That's the point we're wanting to see. Let's go to the illustration. He talks about light. Beginning at verse 14 now through verse 16, what did he say about light? You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now what light does is it dispels darkness, enables us to see. And as influential as a light is, in a dark room you light a candle, and as influential as that light is, that candle is, or that lamp is, so it is in the Christian life, we are to be influential on the world. We dispel darkness and enable people to see. Now what's interesting is that verse 16 uses a different expression. It seems that the light is parallel to good works. Now notice he said that you are a light that is set on a hill. And he said you don't put your light under a basket, but so all can see. And then he said let your light so shine. What do you mean? That they may see your good works. Here's how your light shines. By the good works that you do, by your obedience and your service and your discipleship to the Lord. When men see that, your light is shining. That's the point. That's what I'm understanding light to mean. Barclay said and observed, it didn't say that you're the light of the church, but you're the light of the world. In other words, we should shine bright to the world. Not that my light is shining bright within the church and others in the church see me and, and they, uh, they are influenced by me. That's true. They're part of the world, all right. 
but you're the light of the world. Your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers and your family were to be the light indeed of the world. Now, when they see our good works, the text says, notice verse 16. Here's how we're influential. When men see our good works, our diligence to the Lord, our submission to the Lord, our abstaining from evil, when they see our good works, they end up glorifying God indeed. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at this a couple of times. I suggest that what the light here is, is just the opposite of Romans chapter 2. So what's the point of Romans 2? Let me set the context as you're turning there, and then we'll come back and we'll read that text. The context deals with the hypocrisy of the Jews. The Jews were doing the same things the Gentiles were, though they were pointing their finger at the Gentiles. And notice what he says at verse 23. He said, you make your boast in the law, you dishonor God through the breaking of the law, and the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What's his point? When the Gentiles see your sin and your hypocrisy, they say, in essence, I don't want to be a part of the family of God. I don't have anything to do with that. Look at the hypocrisy they're involved in. The flip of that is that when men see your good works and your submission to the Lord, they may be attracted to that and say, I want to be a part of that. And some of you have been attracted to Christianity because of the example of someone else. One has observed that lost men are not moved to glorify God because we observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday, but because they see Christ in you. Now, it is important to serve the Lord's Supper every Sunday. But it's not likely that when you tell somebody, we observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday, they suddenly decide they want to come and be a part of your group. But when they see what you're doing and how you're living, and the influence that you have, they may be attracted to Christianity indeed. Now, this same illustration of the light is given in different contexts, just like salt, and let's see what they are. Mark uses it in the context of parables. Turn with me to Mark for a moment. Turn to Mark chapter 4. It's interesting how the writers, by inspiration, will use the teaching of Jesus where we thought he mentioned it in this context alone, and the, another writer will quote him again but put it in a different context. That's interesting how that happens. And so let's see what Mark's account says in Mark 4 and verse 21. Mark 4, 21. He said, is a lamp bought to be put under a basket or under a bed? It is, not, is it not to be put on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden that cannot be revealed. Look at verse 23. Anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. It is in the context of dealing with parables. The emphasis, without developing the whole context, is on what we hear. Now that's interesting. Then he talks about a light, letting your light shine. In the context of listening to the word of the Lord and taking heed what you hear. Now, there's another par passage. Luke 8, you ought to recognize that. Dealing with the parable of the sower, etc. Luke 8, verse 16, he quotes it again in the context of parables, but the emphasis is on how you hear. So in the context of how you hear and what you hear has to do with our light, our influence. So what are you listening to? Do you listen to the word of the Lord? You say, well, that's a different context. Well, it is a different context, but it's also in the same context of doing good works. It's all making the same point. That when men see us listening to the word of the Lord and they pay attention to what we're listening to and how we listen to the word of the Lord, we are influencing the world thereby. Now, let's go to another. Another comparison is that of leaven. Let's turn to Matthew 13 to get the, par um, the passage. Then we'll come back and talk about what that may mean. This is one of those parables that is a single verse parable. It's all found in one verse. Another parable, he spoke to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, 
which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leaven. And that's the end of the parable. That's it. You see, leaven has an impact on the entire lump of dough. That's influence. <laughs> it's influence. And what he's saying, he's talking about the, the impact of those who are in the kingdom. That's me and you. We're like leaven. And leaven has an impact on the entire lump of, of dough. Now, in Matthew 13, in a parallel account in Luke 13, the idea of leaven is used with an influence for good, where the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. It's, it's good. That's a good influence. So as you live the Christian life, as you're living godly, and you tell your coworkers, no, I'm not, I can't participate because that involves some things I can't do, or you tell them I'm going to church tomorrow, and you're giving some kind of example before them, then you are leaven, and that's leaven for good. Same illustration, but sometimes leaven is influence for bad. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lot? That was talking about that fornicator at Corinth. They'd been tolerating the sin, and he was leaven. That's how leaven works. Now, let's talk about how leaven does work. Leaven has an impact on the entire lump. If you have a lump of dough and you put some leaven in it, you don't say, well, it, it's affected this little part, we'll separate it, but we still have this unleavened dough and this unleavened bread. No, you don't. The whole lump is affected. So let's talk about major influence that we have. We're like leaven. It, it has an impact on the whole lump. Here's something else about how leaven works. It works quietly and silently. It's not explosive. It doesn't make great sounds and great waves. It just works silently. You put it in and it works silently. Now it's all leavened. We don't have to make big waves to have an impact. We don't have to be explosive. We don't have to hoop and holler to make it and call attention to ourselves. You can work quietly and silently just by living the godly life and you're having an influence. Somebody's watching. Interesting, it works against the majority. You have this little bit of leaven, but you have a whole lot of dough. And it doesn't look, if you could personify the two, it doesn't look at the dough and say, it's bigger than I am. It's a whole lot more than I am. I don't think I can do this. But it goes into the, to the dough and it leavens the whole lump. It works against the majority. And so you look at the whole world around you. Maybe the whole workforce where you are. Maybe it's your whole family that surrounds you. You say, I don't think I can have an impact. You're the leaven that's supposed to permeate the whole. And you can according to Matthew chapter 13. Here's something else. It changes its environment to be like it. In other words, you take the leaven and you have the lump of dough and it doesn't become like the dough. Again, if you could personify it and you go back and talk to the leaven and say, now what happened when y'all got together? Well, I turned into dough is what I did. I just, I was overpowered. Didn't do that. But you go back to the dough and say, what happened? And say, well, the leaven came in and just permeated the whole thing. It turns its environment to be like it. That's our influence. Let's go to another one. Let's talk about the letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, our influence is compared to a letter. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, he said, I wrote to you, um, he said, um, chapter 1, 2, and 3, that you are read and known by all men, he said. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. That you are read and known, I've written unto you, he said, and you are the letter and epistle that, uh, I'm reading chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3, that you are, the, uh, you are our epistle, 
verse 2, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Now verse 3, you are manifestly an epistle of Christ. Not literally, but he's making this comparison. Here's the point. Letters are written to influence. If we're not intending to influence, then why do we write a letter? Why were the epistles written unless they were written to influence? And so your life, your example is like a letter that's written to influence. Somebody's reading your letter and being moved by your letter. You say, I'm not a writer. Yes, you are. You may be a poor writer, but you are a writer. You may be a great writer, but you're a writer. And you're writing an epistle. You're writing a letter. And you're influencing other people. They're reading and they're being influenced by that. Furthermore, your life is a letter or a book that has your name on it. Do you really want your name on this book? I've written articles and sent them to editors of religious journals. Most of the time they publish that. I remember one time I wrote one and sent it to the editor. And he changed a bunch of stuff and said, I'm changing a lot of things in this. And I said, go ahead, do that. But you put your name on it, not mine. Because I didn't write that. That's your writing. Do you want your name on the book that you're writing? You want it all written out and typed up and then put your name right on the front and say, this is my book, I want to influence people with this. Is that what you want? Somebody's reading your book. Letters should be written to be clearly understood. Are, are people clearly understanding the message of your book you're writing with your life? Do they, do they get the message? Loud and clear? Are they confused? Do they get to the next chapter and say, this seems to contradict that what I read over here in this other chapter. I'm I'm confused about that. How's your book written? And furthermore, what is the message of your book? What's the point of your book that you're writing? What are people getting from that? What's being said? Those are four comparisons. Now let's talk briefly about the power of influence. Influence is powerful. And I'm going to quickly run through a list here, not because it's unimportant, but because I just want to get the gist of how powerful it is. I just want to make a running list of some, some examples of the power of influence. Here's first. Talk about Adam having on, uh, or Eve having on Adam. Remember when, when she was deceived? She was beguiled by the serpent, 2 Corinthians tell, tells us. And she turned around and offered it to Adam and he ate. She influenced him to eat of the fruit. That's powerful influence. He had never sinned before till she influenced him to do it. Powerful influence. That's not the only one. Remember in Galatians chapter 2, before some brethren came from James, Peter was associating with the Gentiles because he well understood Gentiles are gospel subjects. It had been illustrated to him. He well understood that. But when some brethren came from James, he withdrew and would not associate with them. So Jewish brethren had an influence whether they intended to or not, when they showed up, he pulled back and said, I don't want to associate with those Gentiles. I don't want to be seen associating with those Gentiles. Galatians 2.13 says, even Barnabas was carried away with that. Peter influenced Barnabas to be a hypocrite. Powerful influence. And if we could interview Barnabas and ask Barnabas, why are you doing that? Well, Peter did. And if I ask somebody, why are you doing, and fill in the blank, would they point to you and say, well, he or she did that. That's why I'm doing it. Here's another example. Solomon's wives caused even Solomon. What does he mean, even Solomon? Well, with all of his wisdom. With all of his wisdom. Let's go to look at, we won't look at both of those. Let's look at 1 Kings. We We normally note Nehemiah 13. But 1 Kings chapter 11 
1 Kings chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. And he had 700 wives, princes and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For his soul that when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. Here was a man who was brought up in the right religion. He was taught the right thing. He knew the right God. But his wives influenced him in the wrong direction. Like mother, like daughter, Ezekiel 16, says, parents have influence on their children. Children often turn out to be just like their parents. Another example of that, remember, Timothy was influenced by his mother and his grandmother. Here was the faith that was once in his grandmother and then in his mother, and now it's in him also. They had a powerful influence on Timothy. It may be your children, maybe your grandchildren you're influencing. Wives have on their husbands. 1 Peter chapter 3. Listen to me carefully, wives, particularly if your husband's not a Christian, this is a powerful passage. That you do not influence your wife. Be turning to 1 Peter chapter 3. You do not influence your husband to become a Christian by nagging on him or preaching to him or reminding him he's not a Christian, but by your powerful influence of your example. When they observe, verse 2, the chaste conduct accompanied by fear. They're being led to Christ according to verse 1. But how do they do that? When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. When they recognize that you're, you're influential. Wives have influence on their husband. Friends have an associate on, uh, have friends on their associates. Your friends are influencing you. You are influencing your friends. Do not go with an angry man or a furious man, lest you learn his ways. Proverbs 22. A member, a single member of the church can have a powerful influence on the rest of the church. You say, how so? The fornicator at Corinth was the leaven that was leavening the whole lot. If they didn't deal with it, it could corrupt the whole church before it's over. And then this other passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that should be in chapter 3, that talks about the epistle that's known and read by all men. You are an epistle. You're being read by this whole church. There's an epistle written to this church, and it's yours. And they're reading it. This church is reading it. One member can have an influence on the church. We can even have powerful influence after we're dead and gone. In Hebrews chapter 11 and 4, he being dead yet speaks. There are people who are dead and gone and gone for years, still having an impact on you. Their works follow them, Revelation 13, 14 and in verse 13. Now, let's summarize what we just saw right there before we go to our final point. Here's what we just saw about the power of influence. How powerful is influence? Well, it can lead someone into sin. And your influence can lead someone to sin, to do the same thing like the fornicator at Corinth. People say, hey, they, they did it, and I think I'll do it too. You could be influencing somebody to sin. You could point someone to know the Scriptures and know the Lord, like, like Lois did, and Eunice did, to Timothy. They pointed him to the Lord, and he knows the Scriptures now. You could cause someone to quit doing what's right, like Peter did with Barnabas, or James, the brethren from James, did with Peter. You could turn others to be just like you, like mother, like daughter. Remember that proverb? And you could end up corrupting the whole church because of your influence. Influence is powerful. Let's talk about the loss of influence now. That's what a focal point is. But the loss doesn't mean anything unless we understand the power of it. 
And unless we understand what influence really is, so that's why we spent most of our time building what influence is all about to then come back and talk about the loss of influence. It's possible we could lose our influence. Let's start with it. We should guard and protect against loss. We should do everything to protect our influence. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, Proverbs 22 and in verse 1. And that is having a name. What's a name? Well, it's not talking about what your name is. So when somebody asks you, well, my first name and my middle name, my last name. That's not the name he's talking about. Your reputation. A good reputation is better than riches is what he's saying. You protect your riches. If you had an abundance of wealth, you would insure that. You'd put it, make sure it was in a bank where it was, it was insured. You want to make sure everything is safe and secure. Well, what about your name? Are you securing your name? What other passages talk about our example, be an example of the believer? I want to turn to Titus chapter 2, but this is interesting now, in Titus chapter 2. uses similar terminology that we have with Timothy, but I want to notice a particular word in Titus chapter 2, if you will, and in verse 7. Talking about taking sound faith and applying it to all men. Notice at verse 7 he said, In all things showing yourself a good pattern, a pattern of good works. What's a pattern? A pattern is something you can imitate and follow. If I build something in my shop and you say, well, do you have a pattern? Well, here's the pattern. That means you can take it and do the same thing. These ladies make a dress. Do you have a pattern? Well, yeah, here's the pattern. Then you can take it and make the same thing. Or here is a, a dish. Here is the recipe of the pattern. You can take it and make the same thing. Now, notice at verse 8, or verse uh, 7, rather, showing yourself to be a good pattern. So someone could look at your life and say, I'm going to be just like that, and they become a pattern of good works. They follow the pattern. Now, look at verse 15. He said, let no one despise you. Now that's interesting. Verse 7 and verse 15 are separated, but in, uh, in the parallel book, which is Timothy, they're put together. Those two points are put together. What is the idea of let no one despise you? He's he not meaning that someone is not going, you can, that you can prevent someone from looking down upon you. The word despise means to circle around to circle around or to, to escape around. That's not a literal definition, but that's the idea of the BDAG and others. And the idea is be the kind of person that someone in trying to do what they know to be right, they don't have to go around your example. In other words, you tell somebody you need to follow the Lord and, and, and talk nice and you need to not use foul language but they hear you use foul language if they're going to do what's right they've got to go around your example don't let anybody have to go around you don't let them despise you that's the idea and you tell somebody they need to be faithful and, and point them to the scriptures and they look at your example and you're not real faithful they've got to go around your example to be what they ought to be so you need to be a good husband you need to be a good wife that's what the scriptures say but then they look at you and they got to go around your example to finally get to be what they ought to be. Guard and protect your reputation. Now, let's list some things that we do to cause us to lose our influence in the last few years. What are they? Well, let's start with this. Let's go back to the context of Matthew 5. Failing to have the qualities of the citizen of the kingdom. Now this is interesting, because in Matthew chapter 5, he had just listed the qualities of those in the kingdom. Poor in spirit, they are those who mourn for their sin, they are meek, they are disciplined, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are merciful, they are pure in heart, they are sincere, they are peacemakers, they endure persecution. Here are the qualities. Now if I'm lacking in those qualities, 
then I'm not the example the next verse talks about. It's interesting. Here are the qualities of those in the kingdom. Now, you be the light and the salt is what you need to be. You be a powerful influence. How could I lose my influence? By not being what he just talked about in verses 1 to 12. Here's something else. Continuing in sin. Every one of us commits sin from time to time. That's going to happen. Because you commit sin and make correction, and you get, whether it's a private sin or public, and you make correction, that doesn't destroy your influence. What destroys your influence is when you're continuing to practice sin. I cite two examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That was the fornicator Corinth. He didn't turn back until later. But for a long time, he didn't turn back. He just kept pressing on and pressing on in the sin. And so he had destroyed his influence. He had lost his influence for good. Those who became lazy, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, quit working. They lost their influence for good. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Here is one who's continuing to practice the sin of adultery or fornication. And as they're going on in that, the warning of the proverb letter, of the proverb passage in Proverbs 6 is this, beginning at verse 27. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can he walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes to his neighbor's wife and who touches, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Verse 33, wounds and dishonor will he get. What's he saying? He's continuing on in sin. He's practicing sin. He's living a sin of adultery and fornication and he's destroying his influence. Wounds and dishonor. He is not honored. He's not esteemed anymore. He's lost his influence. Hypocrisy. We've already cited Romans 2 and in verse 23. The Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. Pointing to the Jews. They look at you and see hypocrites. You're supposed to be the people of God and you're telling us how to live and you're doing the same thing. We don't want to be a part of that. You've destroyed your influence when people see hypocrisy in you. You're losing your influence. And mass suggests poor judgment and lack of wisdom. It is not always a matter of sin that I've marched headlong into sin and I've, I've been like Adam and Eve and I've delved into the things I know to be wrong or like the fornicator of 1 Corinthians 5. It doesn't, not always that. It may just simply be my, my use of a lack of judgment, a lack of wisdom and poor judgment. And you say, what do these passages have to do with that? Well, let's turn to Colossians 1 and in verse 9. Paul said he wanted the church at Colossae to grow not only in knowledge, but in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I want you to not only know what the Scriptures teach, but I also want you to know something about wisdom. To be able to discern between good judgment and bad. I want you to grow in that. Then Ephesians passage on the screen before you, verse 15, chapter 5, verse 15, talks about walking circumspectly, very carefully. Walking in wisdom, not as fools. Using wisdom as we walk. Yeah, we're to walk in light, we're to walk in love, but we're to walk in wisdom. Those three things are dealt with in Ephesians 5. Walk in wisdom. Very poor judgment, we destroy and minimize our influence. Here's another thing that causes us to lose or diminish our influence, and that is we minimize our association, our involvement. How so? Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. You say, well, that sounds familiar. Just before the passage about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, shows them the value of being together and consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. It's hard to have an influence on brethren, for example, with whom you hardly associate. You may even come to all the assemblies, but, but, but any association beyond that is either minimal or none. 
And it's hard to have influence on them. When, when they get weak and you want to go encourage them, you haven't hardly dealt with them, you've never hardly talked to them at all, it's hard to have influence on them. And so maybe you were involved before and you begin to diminish your association and your involvement in the church. And, and so I'm not involved anymore. I don't teach class anymore. I don't partake in services much anymore. But I go all the time. And, and as, as they get together, I keep drawing back from them. But I want to have influence. You have minimized your influence. You've got yourself back in a circle. You got yourself in a little small area and you're not having much influence until you get out and, and associate with the brethren. That was the whole point of 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3. Furthermore, but not being a good influence. What do we mean by that? Will you fill in the blank? If by doing blank, whatever that may be, some command of God, some directive of God, some good work, if by doing blank is a good influence, then by not doing that same thing, I'm losing my influence. If by showing hospitality is being a good influence, but then by not doing that, I'm minimizing my influence. If by attending is good influence, then not attending, I'm minimizing my influence. You keep on, just, just fill in the blanks. Here's something else I want to share with you. And that is, here's an example. What about being a good family, having good family life? 1 Timothy 3, remember the qualifications of elders? One of the qualifications is that he's to have, be married and have faithful children. That means his family life is to be good. To be a good example in the family life. Faithful wife, she's to be faithful in all things. Children are to be faithful. Why is that? Because how he leads his family is how he's going to lead the church. That's the point. So here's the point. Here's the point is, a good, by having good family life, you're a good influence. That's when the family life turns bad, we lose our influence. Are you losing your influence? Are things going south in the family? Things turning sour in the family? Is there bickering and fight, fussing and fighting going on in the family relationship? Is there problems in rearing the raising of the children? We may be losing and diminishing our influence for good. It is altogether possible to lose our influence, like losing our faith, like losing our courage, like losing our soul. We can lose our influence. We've seen the comparisons of influence, the power of influence, and the loss of our influence. There may be one more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith? and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?